Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey everyone, welcome to Tuesday Night Church. Uh, whenever you're listening to this, it might be a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Saturday. Hopefully not Sunday morning because I'm also teaching a Sunday morning message too. So check that one out on Sunday mornings. But it's just so good to have you here with us. And thank you for the privilege of being able to read and explain the Word of God uh, to you. I pray that God is honored uh, through this time and that you are blessed as we move through the Word. On Tuesday nights, we're in the book of Genesis together. And if this is your first time studying with us uh, for these Tuesday night studies, uh, you should know that we've already recorded teachings on Genesis 1 through 14. So you can go back either at calvary.com or nateholdridge.com or the Calvary Monterey podcast or our YouTube channel, and you can watch or listen to uh, the previous teachings. I really like listening to the teachings via podcast because usually our podcast players give us a little option to speed up the audio. And I like listening around one and a half speed uh, when other people are on the podcast uh, so that I can take in a little bit more uh, of the word. But tonight we're in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, if you'd get your Bibles situated there. And we've got a beautiful passage of scripture where God and Abraham come together as Abraham wrestles with God, really in a sense, over some of the promises that God has made uh, in his life. Now you might remember in our last study, uh, Abram had stepped up to serve as a blessing in Lot's life. Uh, God had told Abram that his name uh, would be great and that he would be a blessing. Uh, and after Abram rescued Lot from invading kings, uh, Lot would have agreed. He would have said, yeah, Abram is a blessing in my life. Now, after defeating the four invading kings and returning the goods and the people of the weaker kings, uh, Abram had a meeting with two kings, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Uh, the king of Salem was named Melchizedek, and he was also the priest of the Most High God. Uh, Melchizedek was Abram's spiritual superior, so he blessed Abram, and Abram gave him a tithe of all the things that he had. But the king of Sodom uh, was a different figure altogether from the king of Salem or Melchizedek. Uh, the king of Sodom was a, was a ruler or the ruler of a wicked people in the city of Sodom. And when he met Abram, just reminding you in chapter 14, uh, he tried to give Abram the recovered riches. He basically said, I'll take my people back, but you take all the spoils for yourself. You keep the money. But, but Abram had made a vow to God at some point. Perhaps he'd even made the vow to God through Melchizedek just a few moments earlier. And the vow that he made was that he would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything from the king of Sodom. He didn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say, I was the one who made Abram, the father of the Israelite people, wealthy or rich. Now it says in verse one of Genesis chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, so what we're learning here is that this next movement that we're going to study, it took place after these things. It says there in verse one. Okay, that's a reference to the meeting that Abram had with the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And like I said, Abram had given away a tenth of his possessions or his finances to the king of Salem, and he'd refused the riches or the wealth of Sodom. So it seems like that episode, giving away and refusing to receive, had stirred something up inside of Abram. 
God had told him in chapter 12 that he'd become a great nation with a great name. But after all these years, and after refusing Sodom's wealth and giving away some of his own wealth, it seems like Abram has fallen into a bit of fear. He's probably saying things like this. How is this going to work out, God? You know, how am I to become a great nation? Uh, you won't let me take the reward of Sol Sodom. I've given away some of my wealth to the king of Salem. I have no real ties to any nation. I'm a nomadic journeyman. And just to remind you, Abram didn't grow up that way. He'd grown up and lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which was a great and developed city. So this was a life that he had adopted in obedience to God. Perhaps he was saying, I can't be expected to do this forever. How are you going to fulfill your promise in my life? You see, this is often the case when God works in your life as well. After times of spiritual victory or success, fears and difficulties often rush in to our minds and our realities. Temptation rushes in. Even in the life of Jesus, you might remember, after the glorious moment that he was baptized by his forerunner and cousin John, and the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, and the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It, immediately after that moment, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. And it seems that Abram was going through his own version of temptation after the victory of chapter 14. Okay, so God responded to Abram, and we already read it there in verse 1. He said, fear not, Abram. In other words, God knew that, Ab that Abram's heart was overwhelmed. God saw Abram's fear. So he addressed it, and the way he addressed it was with his presence in Abram's life. Since Abram had just risked his life by going to war with four city nations, God said, I'm your shield. You know, militarily, I will be the one to protect you. And since Abram had just refused the money of the king of Sodom and given some to the king of Salem, God said, your reward, verse 1, shall be very great. Or I like the way the NIV puts it, I am your shield, your very great reward. You see, after Abram missed out, so to speak, on the rewards of Sodom, he needed to know that God would be his reward. You see, Abram was a man living in between the promise of God and the fulfillment of God's promise. God had made a big and bold promise to Abram. And Abram had seen enough to know that God was at work in his life. But still, the promises had not yet come to pass. He was in that difficult time of living in between the promise and the fulfillment. In a sense, believers today live in a same space, an in-between time. You know, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, as we've been going through that book as a church together, it says in Mark 1.15 that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the kingdom is at hand. It's there. It's tangible. It's reachable. You can touch it in a sense. But at the same time, we also pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. So it's at hand, but we're also longing for it to come. We live in that in-between time. We want the kingdom to come. Like it says in Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride, that's us, say, come about Jesus or to Jesus. In Revelation 22, verse 20, as the Bible closes, what is the prayer of God's people? Come, Lord Jesus. So here we are, like Abram, living in between many of God's promises and his fulfillment. At times, we feel fear as we reject the way of the world, just as Abram felt fear rejecting the gifts of Sodom. 
We might even be prone to feelings of helplessness as we consider the odds that are against us as God's people. Will we be preserved by God? Is he worth following? Will he defend us and provide for us and protect us? Will he fulfill his promises to us? And to us, he might say the same thing that he said to Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And tonight, as we go through the word, I want to show you five things that are helpful from this passage for that in-between life of living in between the promise and the fulfillment. And the first one is found here in verse one from what God said to Abram. Number one, let God be enough. Number one, let God be enough. You see, like Abram, God is our sustainer. He's our shield and he's our reward. He is enough. Abram knew this. Now, that's why he'd said to the king of Sodom in chapter 14, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, he said, I have God. He possesses everything, but I have him, so I have no needs. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us what Abraham's internal attitude was like during this season. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says that Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, he came to a place in his own life where God and what God provided was enough. He believed in God's reward. In fact, he believed that God was the reward. He didn't need the blessings of Sodom because he had the blessing of God himself. And it's when we're in between the promise and the fulfillment that we are greatly tested. You know, too often we slip because we cannot hang on any longer. Satan tempts us and we come to a place where we think that God is no longer enough for us. And in those moments, we turn back to Sodom, so to speak. Uh, when we turn to relationships that hurt us or compromise which cannot fulfill us or pride which debases us. You know, for example, I've watched far too many Christians in my time as a pastor who in a moment of loneliness compromise everything they knew to engage in a foolish relationship. You know, often it costs them very very dearly. But while walking through their valley of the shadow of death, uh, something happened to them. They panic and they begin to buckle. God's grace, of course, extends to us when we make such foolish decisions. But I've never met anyone who hasn't regretted those types of actions and compromise. What a person like that says in that moment is, I wish I'd trusted God. He is enough for me. But in that moment, I just couldn't believe it. But we must let God be enough. In, in this passage, Genesis chapter 15, he tells Abram that he will be his protector and his provider. God's shield would defend Abram and God's presence would provide for Abram. This was an important message for Israel because one of their major sins throughout their history was trading their glory, a relationship with God, the God of the universe. They trade that glory for the worship of idols. But God, he's enough. We shouldn't need to look elsewhere. Too often we want more from God than we want God himself. Now you could hear that kind of sentiment in phrases like these. Here's one. I'm leaving my church for another because of the worship. Now, this usually isn't a way for someone to say that the worship in the new church they're going to is so God-focused and God-honoring that the word of God and the giving to God and the service to God and the singing to God of that new church are all so beautiful in the sense that they are like sweet incense to the God of the universe. It's usually not a way to say that. It's usually more of a way to say that the song time resonates with us personally. 
And in a sense, if we're not careful, what we're really saying in a moment like that is, I worship myself and my experience. Or another phrase, I'm tired of being single. I know what God's word says, but there are too few believers out there, and surely he wants me to be happy. But saying something like this is a great insult to the God of glory. It's a way of saying that he is not enough, that he cannot satisfy the longings of your heart, that you are not designed to be made complete in him, that you need someone else to complete you when the God of the universe is there to fulfill your life. And it's also a way to say that he is not worthy of your allegiance or obedience. Or I'll give you a third phrase that would say that God is not enough. When someone says, I'm going to give in to temptation, it's so attractive. If God didn't want me to enter into it, why did he allow it to be so attractive? Why did he give it such pull? But this is a perversion of God's creation. Of course, God made beautiful things and beautiful activities. That's what he does. That's who he is. He loves his people. So he wanted us to enjoy what he made as a way to celebrate him. But this statement is not a way to enjoy what God has made, but a way to say that we want life by our design rather than by his design. But God came along to Abram and he comes along to us and says, I am your shield. I'm your reward. I'm the one that you need. Okay, before we move on to Abram's response uh, in verse two and following, I do want to draw your attention to one more thing in verse one. It says there in verse four uh, that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And uh, here in verse one, we see that the word of the Lord came to him. So first the word came, Then Abram in verse four had a vision. And both of these phrases, the word of the Lord came and a man having a vision or a woman having a vision are things that God would give to prophets later in the Old Testament. So in a sense, it's like Abram comes along as the first prophet. He's portrayed in a very prophetic uh, kind of sense. I just wanted you to see that there before we move on to verse Two. Let's read it together. But Abram said, here he is in response to what the word of the Lord had communicated to him. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Okay. What we have here in verse two and three are the first recorded words of Abram to God. So far in the book of Genesis, Abram has spoken to uh, his wife, Sarah. He's spoken to Pharaoh. He's spoken to Melchizedek, the priest of the most high God. But here, this is the first time that he has spoken to God. It's not that he hasn't spoken to God up to this point in his life or that he hasn't prayed up to this point in his life. It's just that we don't have the record of what he said. So here we have the first recorded words of Abraham to God. And what he said to God in verse two was, God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And what he announced to God is that at that point in his life, a member of his household, a man named Eliezer, would have been the heir. Had Abraham and Sarah died at that point, Eliezer would have inherited everything. There's even a little bit of wordplay that's easy for us to miss in our English versions because he says Eliezer of Damascus. And the word Damascus sounds similar to the word for heir in Hebrew. So it's like he's saying, look, this guy from Damascus, he is my heir. He just presents it to God as a problem. You told me that I become a great nation and I don't even have a child. I don't even have a son. Apparently, Abram and Sarai had taken some steps that people would normally take in that culture to secure their future and their heir, even without having biological children. And many times in that culture, a childless couple uh, would 
take a servant and make them into their legal heir. It was considered a perfectly acceptable step. But for Abram, it just didn't sit right, even though it was normal in that culture. It's like he's saying, what are you doing, God? You know, you made me this promise, but that's not the situation that I'm living out. So in verse four, God responds. It says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Okay, for his part, when God responds to Abram, notice that he doesn't even refer to Eliezer by name. He instead says, this man in verse four. Uh, he would not be Eliezer. He would not be Abram's heir. Instead, God promised and said, your very own son shall be your heir. Now, God had already told Abram, like I've been saying, that he'd become a great nation and that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth. Now, God adds to that imagery a little bit by saying that his descendants would be as innumerable as the stars of heaven. And later in chapter 22, when we get to that section, God will say that they are going to be like the sand on the seashore. So the dust of the earth, the stars of heaven, the sand on the seashore. This, this of course, was a reference to the people of Israel that would come from Abraham's ancestry. But as the Bible unfolds, uh, it becomes obvious that God had in mind the spiritual descendants of Abraham also. Christ came from Abraham. You know, he was a descendant of Abraham. So, Galatians 3 verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, just as Jesus's kingdom parables make clear for us, the kingdom of God will grow and grow and grow and grow. And Abraham's descendants will become great and innumerable people. Uh, so much so that even the church is included in a sense. We don't replace Israel, but we're part at least spiritually, of the blessings of Abraham. In other words, God's house is really big. I told you I was going to share five things that help us through times where we're living in between the promise and fulfillment. And here's the second one. You have to, number two, see past circumstances. You have to be able to see or look past your circumstances. You see, the life lived in between the promise and the fulfillment it just has to go past what can be seen. All Abram could see was Eliezer. You know, but God, when he looked at Abram, he didn't see Eliezer. He just dismissed him as this man. But God saw something else. He saw descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the dust of the earth, and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But the thing is, is that all we can see is all we can really see. You know, we look around at our circumstances so many times and we ask, what is God doing? Do, do, does God see where things are at? D does God see what's happening here? But for that in-between life, we have a secret weapon. It's God himself. You see, he's the one that spoke to Abram and told him about something beyond what Abram could see. And we get the same from God in a similar sense in that we have page after page of God's word. It's his way of drawing us into, communicating into our ears and minds and hearts and souls a better reality. He paints a picture in his word of what he is doing beyond our circumstances. Just as God showed Abraham something more, God's word shows us something more when our circumstances overwhelm us or confuse us. And the ability to see past your circumstances and into God's reality is powerful. It's not the skill that uh, people who don't do much possess. 
It's the skill that men like Paul the Apostle possessed when they went out into the world and changed it with the gospel for God's glory. Men like Paul knew that there was more to life than his circumstances. Now, after saying this to Abram, and after Abram heard what God had said, there's a massive verse there in verse 6. It says, and he, Abram, believed God, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Abram had heard the promise of God, and he believed the Lord. It's just very simple there in verse 6. That's what he did. He believed the Lord. Uh, it, it almost feels on one hand like an unnatural place in the timeline of Abram's life for this particular belief to occur. You see, in chapter 12, God had given to Abram many promises. Uh, Abram had worshiped the Lord uh, at various altars in chapter 12 and 13. Uh, the Lord had shown Abram already in chapter 13 the land that he would one day through his descendants, inherit. And God had infused him with power and might to be able to fight against invading foreign kings. And he'd given him the Melchizedekian blessing there at the end of our last chapter, chapter 14. And after all that, only now do we learn that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Okay, so some questions come up here, partly because we know that this verse is quoted often in the New Testament as an example of righteousness which comes by faith and not by works. The questions that we might ask are, is this the first time that Abram believed God? Is this the moment of Abram's conversion? Is he saved here in this episode? Personally, I think it's better to think of this as a summary statement of Abram's entire interaction with God. Generally, he believed God's promises, both here and earlier, previous episodes. And God loved this faith, and so he counted it to Abram as righteousness. Now, like I said earlier, as modern Christians, modern believers, we know that this is a pivotal moment in Scripture. Uh, when Paul wrote his treatise on the gospel, the book of Romans, and picked apart each section of the gospel, he talked about a righteousness that comes apart from the law of God. And he said in Romans 4, verse 1 through 3, what shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. This is Paul quoting from Genesis 15, verse 6, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, he used Genesis 15, verse 6, to demonstrate that righteousness, justification, comes by faith. And he used it the same way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. It was faith that unlocked the deposit of righteousness into Abraham's account. Abraham believed God, and God made Abraham righteous. Now today, we're also called to believe the promise and revelation that God has given. We know a lot more than Abraham knew at that point. Uh, the cross, of course, is in our rearview mirror. Abraham couldn't see the coming of the Christ and the cross clearly. All he saw was the promise that God was making. But we know that God the Son died in our place on the cross. We know the offer of forgiveness and redemption is held out to those who believe the cross to be the only means of salvation. And our faith in the promise of the cross leads God to deposit righteousness into our accounts. He counts or imputes righteousness to those who believe. And the righteousness that we end up receiving, one scholar I re I've read referred to it as worth from God. But this righteousness that we receive, it is the righteousness of Jesus himself. 
You see, Jesus came and lived a sinless and perfect life. He amassed perfect, right living before the Father. He kept the whole law of God, right down to the core of his heart and intentions. And when we believe in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed into our account. This is one of the reasons that Jesus had to live a full life rather than merely die as a child for the sin of the world. He needed to fulfill all righteousness. He had to live out a righteous life. And it's his righteousness or record that we receive deposited into our bodies by faith. Now, if the word deposit or count or account sounds like financial language, uh, it's because they are from the financial world. You know, imagine if you had $100 in your bank account. It was everything that you had. And imagine that a billionaire came along and deposited all of their wealth into your account. That's the idea of imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been deposited into the account of every single person who has believed in him. Now, Abraham's faith, of course, in this moment, annihilates all the other false religions of the world. You know, though false religions have taken all kinds of wildly varying forms throughout human history, they share one major thing in common. Salvation, it lies within you. If you do specific things, you can be saved. If you're good, if you're obedient, if you're holy, if you do random acts of kindness, however you want to say it, be a good person according to that religion or way of thinking, and you will be saved, whatever salvation looks like in that scheme of think thinking. But the thing is, there are really no good people at the end of the day. We've all been corrupted by sin. And so because it's destroyed us, we cannot be right with God by what we do, by our works. It just can't happen. There's no code of conduct. There's no law that can keep us or make us righteous. As Paul said in Romans 3, verse 21 and 22, but with that as a backdrop, that there's no way to be made righteous by our works, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to, to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, now all this talk about imputed righteousness might make someone think that believers like Abraham or like us in our modern era are somehow allergic to a life of good works. But that's not the case at all. People who receive the deposit of Christ's righteousness should really demonstrate countless good works in their lives. And for this, Abraham is actually a wonderful example. It was actually James that wrote about this side of things from Abraham's life. Paul pointed out Abraham's faith, but James pointed out Abraham's works. He wanted to motivate his audience to live in obedience to God. He specifically mentioned the way that Abraham became willing in Genesis chapter 22 to offer his son Isaac on the altar to God. It was a major act of obedience, a major act of devotion, a good work, so to speak. And James said in that moment, James 2, 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Okay, the beautiful thing that we learn from James's use of Abraham is that works follow faith. We believe in Jesus, righteousness is deposited into our account, and then we jut out from our new position of righteousness into a life of good works. Not trying to earn anything because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. We're merely trying to be who he has rebirthed us to be. We are now a righteous people in his sight, and we want 
to act like it. So a third thing that I want to show you about that moment of living in between the promise and the fulfillment is that number three, we must believe God's word and promises. We must believe God's word and promises. You see, as awesome as it is to consider the soteriological or the doctrine of salvation ramifications of Abraham's faith, we just have to stop and think for a second about his faith in the setting of this particular episode. And I think when we do, it speaks to us in a specific way. You see, Abraham was there in the middle of the promise and the fulfillment, yet God reassured him of the future that he'd planned for Abraham. And when Abraham heard that from God, when he heard God's voice say, Abram, your descendants, they're going to be like the dust of the earth, the sand of the sea, the stars in the heaven. When he heard God say that, he just simply believed God. You see, you have to believe God. You have to believe him and take him at his word. You have great and precious promises in Christ Jesus. And so you must believe that redemption and restoration and cleansing and forgiveness and the kingdom that he's promised will all come to pass. I think about Joshua often when I think about believing and trusting in the Lord. Joshua was the man who led Israel into the promised land, but he was Moses's replacement, if you can imagine such a tall task. And he was called by God to lead the people into the promised land. He was a man who very much lived in between the promise that God had made, the promised land, and the fulfillment of that promise, actually eating and drinking of the milk and the honey of the land of promise. And rather than run in fear when things got difficult, Joshua courageously led the people into the land, and God met him in the process. He believed God's word and promises. And because he did, they received the land that God has in store. So what does God have in store for you? Believe him and his promises. All right, let's move on to verse seven, where the passage takes a shift into God making a covenant with Abraham. And he said to him in verse seven, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, when God said this, uh, it would have sounded very familiar or very similar to a later word from God to the people of Israel after he brought them out of their slavery in Egypt. Look at Exodus 20, verse 2. It says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, here, God said to Abram, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. So these words... They mark the beginnings. For Abram, the beginning of coming out, but for the people of Israel, it was the beginning of the covenant with God on Mount Sinai. And the words here in Genesis mark the beginning of God's covenant with, their, with his man, Abraham. God had brought Abram out of Ur in order to give him the land to possess. But verse 8, he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, verse 10, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey, verse 11, came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, God's promise of the land brought up questions in Abram's mind. In verse 8, he said, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You know, he'd, he'd heard God's promises before, but now he wanted some assurances. How would this actually happen? And how would God confirm or keep his promise to Abraham? Now, the beautiful thing to me is that at this point, God was not exasperated with Abram in the slightest. Instead, he basically initiated a time of promise-keeping and covenant-making. 
uh, telling Abraham to bring various animals for a sacrifice. He, he wasn't bothered with Abraham's questions. God was ready to make a guarantee to his man. God was willing to graciously condescend to his beloved and chosen. So Abram did everything that God told him. He got uh, a heifer that was three years old. He got a female goat, a ram, along with a turtle dove and a young pigeon there in verse 9. And he cut these animals uh, in half, except for the birds, and he laid them out before God. It was like preparing a sacrifice for God. But as the sacrifice was there for God, and as Abram waited for God's presence, instead of God's presence showing up, birds of prey, it says, came in verse 11. And they began to descend upon these carcasses. And Abram, he responded to this evil omen of these birds by driving them away. He's defending this sacrifice. It's like he's striving to keep those who would ruin the covenant that God was going to make with him away. He was struggling for it. Now, now in a moment, God is going to foretell to Abraham of a long period of captivity for Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. Uh, like these predatory birds, the people of Israel would have enemies who tried to disrupt the covenant that God had made with them. Egypt would come against the covenant people of God, but God is going to be faithful to the people of Israel, even though the birds, so to speak, of Egypt try to come against his plans for their lives. He would be faithful to them. Now, the cutting of the animals in half, that's odd to us, but it seems that what it speaks of is God cutting or making a covenant with someone. God and Abraham, at the very least, understood the practice, even if it's something that we don't understand ourselves. Okay, but the animals that were chosen for this offering are interesting to us. Uh, some actually see an allusion or some imagery to Jesus' sacrifice through these animals. You know, kind of a precursor to the worship system that Israel eventually entered into uh, at Mount Sinai with the Levitical priesthood and all the sacrifices that they engaged in. That whole system pointed to Jesus, and it seems that this sacrifice also points to Jesus. And this is further um, reinforced by the idea there that the animals were to be three years old, which often highlights a parallel to Jesus, who after three years of public ministry suffered and died as our sacrifice upon the cross. All of this leads me to say, number four, that if you want to do well in between the promise and fulfillment, you must look to the cross. You must look to the cross. Look, when you're there in between the promise and the fulfillment, when the world seems dark and ominous, it is important to look to the cross of Jesus. You know, it's there at the cross that we're reminded of God's great love for us and his promise to us that he'll make all things new. Look at how Paul said it in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He said, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, in Paul's mind, if God the Father was so willing to give us his only begotten son as a sacrifice for our sin, then is there anything that as a good and loving father, he would withhold from us if it were not the very best. He has given us the very best in his son. And so it causes us to say, so he will also graciously give to us all things, everything that we need, the Lord will take care of in our lives. You know, sometimes this is all we have, just looking to the cross of Christ as we go through the insanity of life. I'm sure many of you right now are facing this kind of season in your own experience and life. Just saying, everything seems so dark. The birds of prey are coming to 
disrupt God's plan and covenant in my life. And the only thing you can do is to look to the cross of Jesus and say, though there is so many things I do not understand, I understand the love of God as made manifest in the cross of his only begotten son. Now it says in verse 12, moving on in the passage, that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I, verse 14, will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, let me point out a few things from this paragraph that we just read. First of all, that Abram fell into a deep sleep is absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's reminiscent of God's way of bringing Adam into marriage with Eve, into the covenant of marriage. You put him asleep before forming the woman. It, it also, I think, foreshadows the way that we are brought into the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. You know, in other words, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, completely asleep to the ways of God and the thoughts of God, Christ died for us. While Abram was asleep, God was making a covenant. While we were asleep in our sin, God was making a covenant. He made a way for us while we were completely unconscious, out, dead, asleep. But this deep sleep was also a picture of something in Abram's descendants. Uh, he said, God did, that Abram's descendants were going to head into the deep sleep of a 400 year year sojourn in someone else's land. Now, by the time you get to the book of Exodus, you understand that that was a prophecy about the time that they would spend as slaves in Egypt. God said that he would be, bring judgment on the nation that they served. And that's exactly what God did through the plagues that he brought against the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians had, had been completely overwhelmed by that judgment, they finally sent the Israelites out of Egypt with great possessions. Remember that when they left on the evening of the Passover, the Egyptians came out in droves and gave them precious gems and metals so that they would have money for their journey so that they would never return. And though Abram would die in peace, at a good old age, God said there in verse 15, it would be his descendants who would be the ones to come back to the land of promise. Uh, God said in verse 16 that it would occur in the fourth generation, which when you combine it with the prediction that they'd be enslaved for 400 years, likely means that the way they're speaking of a generation at this point in the book of Genesis was to to uh, be thinking of a patriarchal lifespan of about 100 years. So in 400 years or so, they would return to the land. And why would it take so long for the promise to find fulfillment? Why did they have to wait for the promised land? Well, he says in verse 16, the iniquity of the Amorites, God said, is not yet complete. In other words, God was tolerating the sins of the Amorites, letting their sin come to full bloom before he brought judgment upon them. Uh, this highlights, in a sense, the long-suffering nature of God. Often his long-suffering is misinterpreted as his permission. But here he's waiting for the Amorite people. Will they repent or will they ripen in the error of their ways? And apparently they were just a fallen and depraved people, uh, but the next 400 years would lead to their total corruption. Okay, this passage uh, contains a lot of prophecies uh, that received 
very literal and total fulfillment. First, in verse 13, Abram's descendants would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Second, they would be servants in that land. Third, verse 13, they would be afflicted there for 400 years. Uh, and Israel was in Egypt for at least 400 years, likely 430 years according to Exodus, suffering for 400 of them. Fourth, God would judge the nation that they serve. Fifth, Israel would leave that nation with great possessions. Sixth, Abram would not take part in this suffering, but would die in peace. And seventh, his descendants would come back to the land of promise. And of course, now as we look back on this passage, we know that each specific prophecy came to pass just as God had said. With that, though, let me get you to that fifth concept about walking with God in that in-between time between the promise and fulfillment. You must, number five, wait through darkness. You must wait through darkness. You see, 400 years, it's a long time. But God was willing to endure 400 years to fulfill his promises. I, I doubt that this was the answer that Abram was looking for, but it would have to suffice. God's plans were better than Abram's plans, and God's plans are better than our plans. And when you're living in between the promise and the fulfillment, you have to learn patience while walking through darkness. Some low years were going to hit Abram's descendants, but God was going to use those years for his purposes. He would shape a nation through the fires of trial. And did you know that this is one of the purposes of God in times of trial and difficulty in our lives today? In one sense, it is a blessing from God to endure trial, for it is one of God's greatest means at shaping our character. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I love that phrase, if necessary. Sometimes it's needed in our lives. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A tested genuineness of our faith through the fiery trials of life. Now, verse 17, as we conclude our chapter, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, while it was dark, God made, or God came by a very unique image. He came by the image of an oven. That's what it means when it says a smoking fire pot. That's what they would have used as a, in a Bedouin kind of lifestyle as an oven. Uh, and a flaming torch as well, which is easy for us to envision. Okay. It, it's hard to know why God came and with this imagery, uh, but each element seems to have a connection to ancient, sacrificial, uh, even magical in other cultures, uh, rituals. But what is clear is that God made a covenant with Abram. Uh, it was a very one-sided affair in that Abram was asleep while God made his promise. In other words, it was something that was based on God and not based on Abram. God would keep his covenant. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That's what's happening here 
in Genesis 15. God is making this covenant based on himself and his own character, not upon Abram and his character. Now, God detailed as he made this covenant the boundaries of the land that he would give to Abram's descendants. Now, there is a little bit of debate about this. Uh, some people think that during David's reign, the people of Israel uh, extended or the nation extended to the borders that are declared here in Genesis 15. And others think that they actually never fully realized the promise of God here in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, and clearly modern day Israel, which exists now after hundreds and hundreds of years of non-existence, uh, they do not possess uh, these boundaries that are laid out in Genesis chapter 15. And personally, I very much doubt that this current iteration of Israel and its government will ever, you know, experience that uh, widespread or the boundaries that are declared here in Genesis chapter 15. But on the other hand, I see no reason why Christ's coming won't reestablish these boundaries from Genesis chapter 15. You know, I believe that Jesus will come in and establish a millennial reign here on earth for a thousand years. And it's easy to envision during that thousand years that the promise that God made to Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 comes to fulfillment for the people of Israel and that they get to live in permanently until the new heavens and new earth, the boundaries that God had established for Israel. Now, when Israel read all of this, though, during Moses' day, what would, it, what would they have been thinking? Well, first, they would have discovered all these minute prophecies that God had fulfilled. 400 years in a place where we're enslaved, we get set free, God judges the people that enslaved us, we become wealthy. They would have noticed, after they were delivered from Egypt, that God had been faithful to fulfill the minutia of his promise to them. Second, they would have discovered this additional promise laying out the land they would inherit. They would have read of these boundaries. On their way to the promised land, they would have seen God had told us and our ancestors so many years before that this land would be ours and it should have emboldened them for the future that God had prepared for them. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, establishing God's covenant with humanity, similarities in, uh, occurred. There was darkness on the face of the land when Jesus died on the cross. For three hours, there was darkness there in Israel in the middle of the day. Uh, as I said earlier, mankind was asleep or dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, like the animals, Jesus suffered and died. The animals were split in two. And so was the veil inside of the temple when Jesus died. And it was dark and ominous at Jesus' death, much like this moment here in Genesis chapter 15. But through it all, Jesus has promised his people a kingdom. There's a territory that he wills to give to us. He desires our sanctification. He wants the church to be fruitful. And one day he will come again to establish his reign forever and eventually a new heaven and new earth. And so here's a sixth thing that we need when living in between the promise and fulfillment. And forgive me, I think I might have earlier said five things, but here's a sixth bonus point. We must set our minds on the kingdom. You must set your mind on the kingdom. You see, when you're living in between the promise and fulfillment, like we are today in some senses, it's good to set your mind on the kingdom of God. He's promised that a glorious day will come. And when we're in the middle of the struggle and things are sad and broken, it's good for us to remember his promises to us. Just as Abraham, Abraham's descendants had the promised land to look forward to, so we have the establishment of Jesus's reign inwardly inside our own lives and in the world in which to hope, in which to look forward to. 
As Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I find in the times of darkness and chaos, it's so good to remember God is working these things because he wills that all would come to repentance. He is working on the unrepentant, unsaved hearts in this world. And if I need to endure trials right alongside the rest of mankind in order for God to produce that thirst and hunger in human souls, then I am all for it because my eyes are on his kingdom. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful rest of your week. I'll see you next week for Genesis chapter 16. God bless you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.